Welcome to Concept to Cover, a Jenkins Group podcast. This week, we're joined in conversation by Ellen Newborn. Ellen is a veteran ghostwriter who's going to tell us a little bit more about herself and how she got to where she is today and all the types of books and clients she likes to work with. Welcome, Ellen. Hi, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. So tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to be an expert in book ghostwriting. Sure. Okay, I started my work as a journalist. I was a newspaper reporter. I was a magazine editor. I was a freelance writer. And I was pretty happy doing all those things. And then an opportunity to ghostwrite a book kind of fell in front of me, which is not an unusual story for ghostwriters. A lot of ghostwriters kind of trip into the profession. This was an old source of mine from my newspaper days, a woman named Marianne Szymanski. And she came to me and said, I want to write a book and you need to help me. And so that's how it happened. That was my first book. And when I did it, I realized, oh, that was a lot more fun and a lot more profitable than I expected it would be. And that was the beginning of my ghostwriting idea. And so had you heard of book ghostwriting prior to that? Or was it something that you just kind of said, oh, hey, what is this thing? And is this something that I could really do, you know, and make money at and and turn into a real business? I'm going to say it's a little bit of both on those. I had heard of it, but I wasn't considering it back when I was a freelance writer. But a funny thing, this is the early 2000s. I got a sense that the magazine market was softening. So I was starting to look around for ways that I could get into a higher ticket profession, right? So I wasn't scrambling for a dollar or a dollar fifty a word, which actually is high. Right now, yeah. And so I was looking around and I was a member of ASJA, that's the American Society of Journalists and Authors. And I was on their forum, right, which is where most people had their conversations. And I thought I was looking for higher paying magazine gigs. But when I got there, I came across the postings of, of the late, great Sarah Warnick, who was an ASJA member extraordinaire. And she was a medical ghostwriter. And she was posting a lot, a lot about her experiences writing books for doctors. And something kind of pinged in my head as I was reading her posts. I was thinking to myself, that's a good idea. And that's a legitimate business, creating a ghostwriting business, which which really kind of spoke to my concern about being a freelance writer, which very often felt like a scramble. Mm-hmm. Books seemed like something I could build a business about. And so that's that's how I sort of gravitated to that. I did not know a lot of other book ghostwriters at the time. I know a ton now, but I didn't know a lot then. And so I spent a lot of time reading and following Sarah. I actually saw her once at an ASJA conference and, you know, kind of psyched myself up to approach her and say hi and shake her hand and thank you. I felt like I was meeting Bruce Springsteen. (laughs) A little bit starstruck. Right. Well, she was. She was very much a leader and a groundbreaker and someone who was very much willing to share what she knew. She wouldn't she didn't do a lot of one-on-one with people in ASJA, but she was very 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 free with her knowledge and very useful in that respect. And so what type of book was that first book that you wrote and and did it have any relation to the type of writing you were doing before? Yeah, well the first book with Marianne absolutely. Marianne and I wrote a book called Toy Tips which was based on Marianne's Marianne Szymanski's company which is called Toy Tips and she tests toys. And she was a regular source of mine when I used to have to cover the Christmas retail season. And so what she wanted to write was a book about her process, how to pick good toys, sort of an advice for parents book. So I wrote that book with her. That wasn't a ghostwriting gig. I'm actually on the cover of that one as an and And so that got me started when she said something very interesting to me. She said, writing a book with Ellen, I say it into the phone and then it comes out onto the page. 
And I thought, yeah, actually, that is what I do. I'm taking everything that Marianne is saying, and I am crafting that into a book. And so that really did lead to the kind of books that I write today. I consider my expertise thought leadership books for business professionals. After USA Today, I was an editor at Business Week, so I come out of a business journalist background. And I very much see my role as putting my arms around the knowledge, the, the accumulated knowledge that an individual may have, and finding a way to put that into book form so that that can be shared in a, in a coherent format. There are a lot of very, very interesting people in the world with a lot of very interesting advice. And if you don't have the opportunity to meet them, I am looking for a way to to be a conduit of that information out of their heads and onto the page, just like Marianne said. Mm-hmm. And so you like to write business books, thought leadership books, marketing book. That's sort of your niche. And one thing I've noticed with many ghostwriters is that they have a niche or they develop themselves into a niche. Some ghostwriters, on the other hand, are more generalists. And did it ever occur to you to say, you know, I'm, I'm going to take more general stuff just so maybe I'm more marketable when things come up? Or did you always say, this is where I'm comfortable. These are the things I'm going to write. Well, when possible, I stick to my niche. The truth is most of the time I am in my niche and I'm comfortable there. And I always give that advice to people when they say, I want to be a ghostwriter. What should I do? The reason I advise developing a niche is that when an author comes to a ghostwriter or a collaborating writer, there's the other word for it. When an author comes to someone to help them write a book, they want to be confident that you get them that you get what they're talking about, that they don't have to teach you the whole thing, that you're kind of with them in their zen. And so being a business reporter helped me to have that conversation with business thought leaders. They felt like I understood what they were talking about when they talked about how they built their businesses, when they talked about how they market, when they talked about the way they see their business fitting into the larger economy in the world. And so that was a, I, that was a definitely a strength for me. Do I, I, I never write books that are outside of the business sphere? That's not true. I, I do. I do. Sometimes I'll come across something that's just so sounds like fun or, or you know, speaks to some other piece of my soul that I want to connect to. So I do do that. But I know in my heart that my most profitable gigs are the ones that are business thought leaders. Those are the people I know how to best write for. And I think when I've listened to you speak with those clients and work on their projects and really kind of get them enthused about what they're writing about. You, with that background in business marketing and thought leadership, you bring so much to the table, ideas and concepts and ways of thinking about their book that they may not have thought of before, just because you have the background, but also perhaps a different perspective, different life experiences. And you can make suggestions to them that really kind of ring the bell where they go, wow, now I'm able to connect these dots in a way that I wasn't able to before. I think that's true. And I think that happens most significantly in the development part of the book. When I'm first meeting with an author, when we're first talking about what's this book going to be, what's this book going to be about? A lot of people, when you when you meet with authors for the first time, a lot of them will have a vision of their book that is chronological. 
They want to start with their childhood. They want to move into later education. They want to go through their first businesses and then get to what makes them great somewhere around page 100. And if we all know how we experience books, that's no fun. You want to get to the good stuff right away. And so honestly, what I bring as as a business reporter and as someone who's been working with business people for a long time, writing for them, I know what they want to read. It's not that they don't want to know about the beginnings of this individual. It's that they want that woven into the story in a more organic way so that they don't have to wade through that individual's high school years before they get to the interesting part that they came to read about. So often, because I have a business background, that's what I bring to the table. I'm able to say, this is another way to organize your material that will engage your reader, and you will be able to tell these important life stories, but you don't have to take up the first section of your book exclusively with them. Right, exactly. And so you've kind of touched on a little bit about how you start with a client. What is the process that you go through when you have a new client and you're looking at writing, say, you know, a 40,000 word book, where do you begin and how, how do you go through that process with them? The first step is to find out what the client has. And often I find the client has a very uneven understanding of what he or she has. I've been through situations where authors will tell me, oh, I have a ton of stories, a ton of stories. But when you dig into it, they have a handful of stories that they've told three or four different ways. That's not the same thing. On the flip side, I often find that potential authors underestimate the value of the material and the content they have generated over their years in business. I will often ask them to send me speeches. When have you given speeches? PowerPoints. When have you given PowerPoint presentations? Do you write a weekly anything to your employees, right? The weekly email or a weekly newsletter. Clients often underestimate the value of the content they've already generated internally because they think, oh, that's just internal. That's not really what I'm here for. But that's the material that can make their business processes, their business teachings come to life. And that's what I'm always looking for. So the early work I do with a client, I often call the treasure chest. You're diving in to see what all the client already has. And when I dive in and I find the client has a ton of good stuff, I am the happiest person because I can already see how this book is going to work. And on the flip side, if I dive in and I find out the client really doesn't have very much, then my blood pressure starts to go up because I know we're going to have to do a lot more work before we even start writing. Right. Yeah. When you when you discover that there's no there there, it is right. a panic moment. And that, oh, yeah. Oh, the, yeah. When they tell you they've got tons of stories, but it's actually the same story they've been telling over and over again. And there's there's nothing substantial there to base a book on that. Maybe this might be a white paper, but it certainly isn't a book. Well, there's actually a trick I use to find out. One of the things I do is I ask, I often ask potential authors, can you write down 10 chapter titles for me? Right? And and can they do that? And when I look at that list, I say, are these 10 completely separate and yet very interesting elements? Or am I starting to see repetition? Or mm-hmm. Or here's another one. Are they starting to use chapter titles that are how it all started? or wrapping up or bringing it all together. Those are crutch titles. They are not actual chapters. And so if I can see 10 individual ideas in a chapter list, yay. If I see six and the other ones are all kind of spin-offs or, or as I said, crutch chapter titles, then I'm like, we're going back. We're going back to talk about what this book is really about. You're not ready to write yet. Yes, exactly. So once you get that concept 
established with them and start looking at the the material they have and weaving that together to see if they have something there. Mm-hmm. How do you go from that point forward? You know, let's just say they have something and mm-hmm. we're, we have enough to write a book. And do you begin with interviews? Do you begin with an outline? Yes, on both of those. I do try and set clients up on a regular interview schedule. That's mostly so I can stay on their calendar, right? I say, oh, I need a regular Monday meeting with you. That's to ensure I stay on the calendar. These are business people. They're busy and they're successful. And if I'm not on the calendar, I don't exist. So I do set up early interviews. The first step is almost always the outline, chapter outline, and introduction. Think of it, uh, if you ever think of sort of a traditional publisher's book proposal, you want to have the overview and the table of contents. If you have that, you're ready to move forward. And without that, you may be stalled. So I, I usually do those two things first before I move into the into the rest of the writing. Once you have a detailed table of contents, you really have a blueprint and you're ready to go. But getting that introduction that kind of embraces and displays and presents the big idea of the book and the table of contents that says how you are going to build that big idea into a book experience. Those are the two things you need first. And that, what I've found is also the bulk of the work. Not that the writing is easy, but <laughs> in my experience, once you have that roadmap and once everybody agrees on the way forward, this is the big picture. This is how we're going to move from point A to point B and so on and so forth. It becomes so much more doable and the client sees the vision. Right. And they're excited once they can exactly. see how it's going to happen. But prior to that, when it's just, I want to write a book and this is kind of my idea, it's very overwhelming to them many times. And they're, they're very nervous about how, how are we going to even tackle this? And and that's not, I don't criticize that. The truth is writing a book is a very niche skill. It is a skill that most people won't need. It is a skill that even if some people need it, they may need it once. It's not the kind of thing that they they have honed over their course of their careers. Um, And that's why I come in, right? This is what I do. I've written now 31 books and many more book proposals and many more pieces of books, like chapters or introductions or forwards. I get asked to write forwards sometimes. So often what I say is, of course, it doesn't look doable from your standpoint. Why should it? You've never done it before. So that's why I say rely on what I'm saying. When I'm analyzing your information, when I'm analyzing your material, when I'm listening to you speak, I am engaging the niche skill that I have, which is to take your idea and envision it as a book. Once we get it down on paper, just as you've said, sometimes now they can sort of click into that and say, oh, now I see it. Now I see how it actually is going to roll out. But sometimes it takes a couple of chapters before everybody is into a momentum. Right. And how do you get their voice to how do how do you make the writing sound like they're writing it as a ghostwriter? That's that's one of your main jobs. That's one of the main differences between being a ghostwriter and being a book writer for a royalty publisher where they give you a topic and you write the book, they, you know, they give you a general tone and style to follow. But when you have this client who, you know, perhaps has all these speeches out there, they have a very defined speech pattern, a way of talking and speaking and acting. How do you figure out how to get that on the page so that it, it sounds, you know, you could, you could fool their, their children or their right. spouses. How do, how do you make people think this is, this guy actually wrote this book? I would say that is probably the number one thing that clients worry about. How are you going to capture my voice? 
And, uh, and I always promise them that I can do it. And the, here are some tricks that I use. One of the things I use is I ask them to identify publications that they like. I used to use The Economist, The New York Times, and USA Today. Or, you know what I mean? And I would say, where would you say, which of those do you like? Where would you say is your voice closest? And you can see I'm looking for written examples of things they like. I ask them to talk about books that they've read that they like. It can be books on the topic or it can be different books. I can tell you I worked with one client once where I asked him what his favorite book was. And he said, Into Thin Air, which is the, the harrowing mountain climbing expedition. And I thought to myself, ah, an adventure voice. He's looking for, he's not looking for a how-to voice. He's looking for a reach for the stars, go for it, you know, attack the elements kind of voice. So sometimes you can get it by asking what else they read. Sometimes you can get it by looking at things they've already written. One of the things I often try and impress upon them is that your speaking voice and your book voice should be similar, but they don't have to be exactly the same. You can be more colloquial in the way you speak and a little more formal in the way you write, and that's not a disconnect. So I, I often try and impress upon people that what we're going for here is a book voice. How do you want the book voice to sound? It's not necessarily a copy of your spoken voice. It should ring true and be similar, but it doesn't have to be exactly the same. Right, exactly. And so once you find that voice and you're in a groove, what does the process generally look like? Is it interview, write, review, or do all the interviews, then all the writing, and then review later? How, how do you like to work that process? Well, I like to make sure everybody's doing something at all times. So what I do is I will interview an individual, and I will write the first draft, and then I will give it to the client to review. And at the same time, I get in second interview. So I'm writing draft of second chapter, client is reviewing chapter one. And I try and keep us in that kind of circle so that we're always on an assembly line. I want the client to be reviewing chapters that I've already written. I want to have new material that so I can be generating new material as, as that happens. I do not like to do writing in large chunks like more than a chapter, for example, and then getting a feedback on that. I find that that holds everybody up. That again, you go back to what people normally do. How often do people edit and review four or five chapters of a book at a time? They don't. And so I like them to look at the individual chapters. But once a first draft of each chapter is created, then I put it in one file. And then I make the announcement, we are now dealing with a book. We will only deal with the whole book. We're not you know, putting off the chapters into individual pieces. Now we're going to deal with it as an entire book. But in the first draft, I do one chapter at a time, reviewing as we go along. And so you find that you work that all the way through to the end and mm -hmm. review, cycle, write, edit, review. And when you get to the end, tell me a little bit about the emotion and the thought process the authors go through when they're finishing a book. What have you seen how they behave when we're getting close to the end? It is very common for clients to stall right at the last chapter. And that is a panic response because it is one thing to spend time with me writing the book, editing, talking about it, right? We're all really into it. But then towards the end, the moment of truth comes and the author starts thinking, oh my goodness, everybody is going to read this. Is it any good? 
Am I going to be sorry? Have I said something that I'm going to have to apologize for? Will this hurt my business or help my business? What what if I get, you know, what if I get bad reviews? All of those things start to churn through your head. And what I often say to them is I say, you know, welcome to life as a writer. I feel that all the time. And I have been in this business since I was 21, which is a long time. I'm not going to give the uh, exact date for everybody to do the math. But <laughs> That is a very where you're holding your finger over the send button and you're and you have to like psych yourself up to hit it. Very common. All writers experience it. So I always try and kind of get in there with my client and say, I know how you feel. I feel that. I feel that when I write. I felt that when I wrote my novel and I sent it to agents. I feel it when I write sometimes long emails that are complicated. So, you know, embrace the fear. It is part of the author experience. Right, exactly. But don't stop because otherwise your book stays in your head and nobody else gets it. I mean, I often try and explain that to people that I was your first reader as your as your collaborating writer. And if it wasn't any good, you would have heard from me. Because that's my that's my value here. My value is to get your story out in its best possible form. If it wasn't any good, I'd be cycling us back to chapter 1 to start over again. I would not want something to go out that wasn't good. And then the other thing that I try to focus on sometimes is there's so many more exciting things to come after we cross this this hurdle we can then begin producing the book and make it look like a real book and begin thinking right. about the cover and the interior and the graphics and charts and tables right. and all those fun things and then we get to start thinking about how would you sell the book who would you market the book to you know how how do you how do you want to go about pitching this Right. So, you know, once they can kind of see, oh, there's there's more steps along the way, there's more exciting things to think about, they're more inclined to move off that spot that they're at, that that place where right. they're stuck. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Don't stall now. Don't right. stall now. We got a lot more to go. Right, right. So you found that first project, you know, sort of through a friend, through through someone you knew, but how do you how do you get your ghostwriting projects now? At this point in my in my career, a lot of my work comes from referrals or from people I've already worked with, outfits I've already worked with. But I will be celebrating my 20th anniversary in the in the ghostwriting business next year, so that's a long time. Back Congratulations! In early, well, thank you very much. Back in the early days, I did look. I, I found ASJA very helpful. For example. I would often go to the conferences and I would pitch my wares at Client Connection, which is a way to meet editors and meet agents. Marketing to agents, literary agents often have a client that they would like to see write a book, but that client either doesn't have the time or the writing chops to make that happen. That agent is in the market for a ghostwriter. Now, there's not really, you know, you can't go to the store and buy a ghostwriter. So how do, how do you find ghostwriters? Sometimes ghostwriters have to find you. I used to do marketing mailings back when mailings were a thing to to agents, really just to be in their files. You never know when an agent was going to need something. So that was pretty common as well. But but even now, even when a lot of my work is from existing clients, publishers I've worked with, I will still sometimes find myself looking down the barrel of an empty calendar. And so, for example, last year around this time, the world was looking a little thin to me. So I went on LinkedIn. And I started writing about the book publishing process, book proposals. Well, I think I was focused on book proposals. And that shook the snow globe a little bit. And I ended up with a couple of new clients from that. And those were not people I knew before. These were people who engaged with me on LinkedIn. So LinkedIn is a good professional marketplace as well. Definitely. So as a ghostwriter, you have a lot of flexibility to your day, your schedule, what days you want to work, how you want to work. And how do you structure your day and your week 
Do you have certain days where these are interview days, phone call days, these days are set aside for writing, these days are set aside for editing? How do you, how do you set yourself up for success? Every project is different. So some projects require a lot of interview time. Some projects require only a little, but a lot of reading. Some will require a lot of writing, but less editing. So it's, it's, I can't say that my week works out the same way all the time, but I do kind of come out of the weekend and, and set a plan for what's ahead. I work in the Pacific time zone now, so I get up early because a lot of my clients are in the Eastern time zone. So I'm often at my desk fairly early and my afternoons are more free. I like to do my interviews first and my writing second if I have a choice. But again, I, I try to be flexible. The truth is that one of the things that you have to be if you're a ghostwriter is you have to be able to organize your day. Nobody's going to tell you when you have to be at your desk. Nobody's going to tell you when you have to do things. So you have to have an internal clock that'll say, the best thing to do is to do this interview first and then do this edit and then do the reading at the end of the day. You have to be able to sort of organize yourself in that manner. Right. And understand where your strengths and weaknesses lie at what times right. of the day and, and where you're most productive and right. how best to use your utilize your brain power. I know that I'm much more productive in the morning, so I have to really do any heavy lifting than, you know, I would I would do writing in the morning and then schedule interviews for the afternoon. Just, Interesting. Yeah. Just one of those things where I, I'm the kind of person that likes to eat the frog early because if I don't do that thing, <laughs> then it's never gonna get done. So uh -huh. best uh -huh. to do it early when you're uh, full of coffee and and really raring to go. Well, I mean, I can see that. And I think that one of the things I try to do is I, I, my office is full of paper, even though everybody has gone to electronic calendars. So I have, I, have an, I have a desk calendar, I have a big whiteboard, and I, I tend to write down what needs doing. So it's in front of me. So it's in front of my eyes, and I can't pretend it's not there. And then I, I like to check it off as the day goes by. You know, I'll get up and I'll get my big red marker and I'll check something off. That's sort of a, a reward for moving through. I love checking stuff off my list. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I love it. It's like the favorite part of my day. Just mm -hmm. write a list, mm -hmm. knock stuff out, check it off. And I feel so successful. And then there are days where I don't get anything checked off and I'm looking around going, what did I do today? I know I worked really, really hard all day, but it, it feels like I got nothing done because I didn't get to check anything off the list. Right. Oh, actually, now that you've said it, here's something that I do. I do go through my email in the morning and then I don't go through it again for a couple of hours. Do you know what I mean? Like I go through my email, I check and see if anybody looking for me, anybody needs me right away, somebody needs an answer for something. And I take care of whatever email needs to happen. And then I close the email client. And I get through my writing and my interviewing and I'll check back in maybe after lunch or something. So because email will always provide you with something else to look at than your work. Right. And another There'll distraction. be an email that you can like, oh, I could deal with that. No, no, do not deal with that. Like you can spend your whole day just responding to email. So I do do that in chunks. And I also try and keep social media until late in the afternoon because you can just dive down the rabbit hole there. Yes, you can you lose the rest of your day very quickly that way. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So if someone was listening to this podcast and they were someone who wants to be you, they want to be a veteran ghostwriter who has multiple books under their belt, what would you think would be a really good piece of advice for them to, to take or to, to take away from our discussion today? 
Well, a couple of things. The first one I would say is to understand that ghostwriting is not all writing and maybe not even mostly writing, that there are other elements of being a good ghostwriter. And you should try and think about whether or not you have or like doing these things. I used to call it customer service. You have to remember that you're not particular. I, I speak to a lot of journalists who want to move from journalism to ghostwriting. And I always tell them that the adversarial relationship you have with your editor as a journalist, you cannot carry over to ghostwriting. Your ghostwriting is your client, not your editor. So you have to sort of think to yourself, am I willing to be in a client business? Am I willing to consider customer service? Also, do I have project management skills? Because often a lot of what I'm doing as a ghostwriter is helping the author organize the material into something that can then be a book. That may mean rounding up a lot of people for interviews. That may mean organizing a lot of material and knowing what other material is missing and who needs to go get it. It can often mean networking through a company. If it's a CEO, chances are you're not only talking to the CEO, you're also talking to the public relations person and maybe the marketing director. And so you want to think about whether or not you want to have all those things in your day. It's not just quietly sitting there with your pages and writing great prose. That's only part of it. The other piece I would say is, I think I mentioned it earlier, is a specialty. I always recommend a specialty, and I think it's good for people to, to have as ghostwriters because it helps clients feel an affinity with them. And the last thing I will say is that I did not make money on my first probably two ghostwriting projects. I, I viewed them as loss leaders. I wanted to make sure I had two books under my belt so that I could then go out and say, I am an experienced ghostwriter. So uh, I think when you're looking down the barrel of your first or second ghostwriting project, you're looking to get through without going bankrupt, but those are not going to be your big profitable moneymakers. Right. I think that's great advice for anyone in that you, you may have to take a couple jobs at a lower rate just to get some experience under your belt. That is something that Jenkins Group also requires is at least two ghostwritten books because right. we are looking to make sure, number one, that you can write, but also that you do have that key project management experience that we need because, as you say, the writing is is almost, I don't want to say secondary, but if you can't manage the project, it will dissolve into dust because we'll never get to the writing because we can't organize right. the structure. And exactly. You, you've pointed out the reason you need project management skills, because in order to get to the writing, the project has to be organized and the project has to have a blueprint. If you can't do that part, you won't get to the next part. It's linear. Right. So uh, I think that that's a good way to think about it. Well, is there anything else you can think of that we've forgotten to talk about, about all the wonders of ghostwriting? I will say that ghostwriting is a great profession and I enjoy it. One of the things that I love about it is that back when I was a journalist, you would interview somebody really interesting and then maybe use a one quote or two quotes. And collaborative writing is really very satisfying because you connect with these really interesting people and you have the opportunity to tell their whole story. So you really feel when you've finished a book that you have added to the conversation. You've added to the global conversation around this business trend. And that's a very satisfying feeling. And it goes back to what Marianne said to me the first day, which is that, you know, she's got all this stuff in her head, but I'm the one who can make it come out onto the page. So it's a very satisfying experience. And that's why I stay with it. Right. And I think that journalism background always helps ghostwriters become better ghostwriters because they have this skill of asking those questions that and drawing out information that perhaps a client didn't know they had or didn't know was valuable. Right. Didn't know was interesting. I think that's often the case, that clients underestimate what are the elements of what they do every day that is valuable to a reader. Exactly. And how that can also be interesting in a book itself. Right. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Concept to Cover. If you want to find out more about the show and our guests, the conceptcover.com podcast, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Bye for now.